This podcast was sponsored by Mutual Insurance Company of Arizona. Mike is the select provider of medical professional liability coverage for the Maricopa County Medical Society. For more information about MICA, call 602-956-5276 or visit www.mica-insurance.com. I am Dr. Karini Vinales, board member of the Maricopa County Medical Society and an associate program director for the Endocrinology Fellowship Program of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Welcome to our Arizona Physician Podcast. The big thing about crisis is when we get hit by something big, we feel the sense of helplessness. And step two is what starts training our brains to get beyond that feeling of helplessness. Hi, and welcome to the Arizona Physician Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. And we're joined today by Jennifer Love, MD. She is board certified in psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and addiction medicine, and is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. We're going to talk today about the book that she co-authored entitled When Crisis Strikes, Five Steps to Heal Your Brain, Body, and Life from Chronic Stress. It's something that she had co-authored with uh, Dr. Hovick. Dr. Love, thanks for being here on the podcast. We really want to, um, to dive into this and, and talk with other physicians about why this matters. We briefly covered your bio and your specialties, but I was wondering if you could share with the audience a little bit more about what you do in your day job, uh, what practice you're in, and anything else about your training. So I almost laugh at calling it a day job because I think physicians right now, we're working all hours. It's, it's not a day job anymore. Um, my background in training, um, I did... I went to medical school in Southern California and I did my internship and residency and fellowship at University of Hawaii. Um, My residency is in general adult psychiatry and my fellowship training was a joint program of addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine. That's kind of a little bit about, you know, what I do. I work around the clock in a group practice, um, taking care of very severe patients. Thanks for sharing that. And really glad to have you as a guest, but you did co-author this with Dr. Hovick. Could you talk about Dr. Hovick's background and what he does as well? Yes. Um, Chiltura, um, Americans call him Dr. Hovick because his first name is so complicated. He's a clinical neuropsychologist in Norway. Um, and he won PhD of the year a few years ago. He's written a few chapters for a book that won Psychiatry Book of the Year in the UK, I think in 2018. Um, He's a researcher, he's involved with direct patient care. Um, And we have very different personality styles. You know, I'm an introvert, I'm kind of soft and quiet. And this guy, you know, I always say he's just, his thoughts are as wild as the curls that are just piled on top of his head um, and never ending. And he has some really great analogies being from Norway. He used to be a PGA player. He did psychological coaching for the Norwegian ski jumping team. So his analogies are way cooler than mine could ever be. Like I talk about snorkeling and like, you know, so he's just kind of adds, you know, a male perspective 
and you know, crisis is about balancing. Like people like me who are soft and introverted sometimes have to be really strong, and people who are really strong sometimes have to be um, a little more soft. And so we thought if we could do this together, we could really speak to everyone. That's great. I'm really glad that you put pen to paper or you typed this out, however you did it, but. There are very few physicians, very few people who share their perspectives widely, who put uh, information out through peer-reviewed journals or opinion pieces, for example, and even fewer still who write books. So you'd mentioned you're an introvert. What motivated you to write this book, When Crisis Strikes, and how did it evolve? Yeah, well, I thought that writing was perfect for an introvert because I've done some TV stuff, and that's really stress-inducing, and I didn't know that to be a writer, you have to put yourself out there just as much, um, but that's how the book idea came from, but the idea was really to take what we do with patients um, and make it accessible through a new model that we created. So we wanted it to be straightforward and emotionally accessible, but not too shallow, um, we wanted our model to have depth, but we didn't want our readers to drown. So everyone has crisis. We have long-term health issues or long-term psychiatric issues, uh, illness in a family member, addiction in the family, midlife crisis. I know nothing about that, by the way. Um, spiritual crisis, traumatic event, having a child with special needs. No one is immune even us as physicians, I would say, especially us as physicians. So we really wanted to make our work accessible to rearrange the tools in the toolbox for kind of the everyday person. And I wrote the book that I would want to read. Um, you know, I love biographies and people's stories. And so, you know, we talk about the steps, but the whole second part of the book is vignettes of how people actually apply those in their particular situations. I really like that approach. It, it, uh, it makes it much easier to digest. Um, the stories are what people need to know. That brings me to this format of the book, right? It's, it's not very dense. Uh, it's not heavy on scientific terminology. Mm -hmm. I find it very approachable, especially for somebody like me who knows very little about psychiatry. So was that intentional? And, and did you and Dr. Hobick find it difficult to present what are very often complex ideas in a simple way? Yes, that was kind of my specialty when I was younger. So when I was in college, I somehow became the student that the professors would say, hey, you know, this person has a big family problem. Can you help that person along? And I kind of became a translator um, early on for what the professor would say and like how I could explain it to someone um, the first time I did this was someone whose fiance was in a coma and she wanted to stay in school, but like, she just couldn't, you know, she just needed to know what she needed to know. Um, and then later on became like a teacher's aide and kind of all that stuff. So, and then a professor. So in between, um, medical school and residency and before medical school, I taught both at university and also community college and that community college is, it, you know, it's, you have that whole range of people yeah. from people who are in high school, who are taking advanced classes really early to people who are having that second career um, or, you know, people with special needs who are taking classes who aren't going to end up with a degree, but it's really healthy for them to be there. So you have to communicate in a way that everyone in the room gets it. The smarter people aren't bored. Um, and everyone can follow along. 
I want to ask you one more question, then we'll go to break. The subtitle is Five Steps to Heal Your Brain, Body, and Life from Chronic Stress. What are those five steps? So the model is based on actually the fingers of the hand. And this is something that Dr. Hovick came up with. Um, he has a favorite philosopher who says, you know, the hand is the extension of the brain and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when I researched it and saw like what all the fingers do, I said, this makes sense. But I said, there is no way in hell Dr. Love is going to have a hand model. <laughs> like that's not what we're calling it. You know, it can be the five steps. Um, and coming up with that, um, and we can go through them after the break. It's really about um, how we rearrange the therapy tools that we have into a way that makes sense for people and actually makes sense when you go through the fingers of the hand. Dr. Jennifer Love, thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, we'll come back from the break. We'll dive into what those five steps are and then applying them through uh, some of the stories that you tell. We'll be right back. This podcast was sponsored by Mutual Insurance Company of Arizona the select provider of medical professional liability coverage for the Maricopa County Medical Society. As a physician-led mutual, MICA has been Arizona's choice for medical professional liability insurance for nearly 45 years. We provide value to members with superior claims handling and exceptional risk management programs. Call us today for a quote or visit our website to learn more about MICA's premium coverage options and outstanding service. 602-956-956 www.mica-insurance.com. Bureau of Medical Economics has been servicing the account collection needs of the medical community since 1951, with nearly 70 years of experience in this industry and proven results. We proudly consider our clients, your practice, an invaluable business partner. There is no obligation and no upfront cost. Please give us a call at 602-252-3469 for more information. Welcome back to the Arizona Physician Podcast with our guest, Jennifer Love. Dr. Love, um, before the break, we briefly mentioned that there are five steps. We've got get a grip, pinpoint what you can control, push into motion. Uh, step four is pull back. And then step five, hold on and let go. Can you go through a little more detail, uh, give people a preview about what those steps are? Yes. Um, the first step is the thumb. It's called get a grip. And it's kind of, it's naming the problem, but it's also understanding the context. I always say it's not what happens to us in life. It's the context of it. So it's, you know, you and I could both get a divorce and one of us might be fine. And the other one might be in a blanket fort for the next three months. Um, and that's based on our past experiences. So it's getting that understanding of the life context, who we are, the relationships we have, our thoughts about this particular crisis, it's an excavation. And you have to stop escaping to bring your attentional control. So step one also involves, you know, not diving into alcohol every night after work or porn or video games or marijuana or escaping into work um, when there's a problem at home. So it's about getting that attentional control and really getting a detailed understanding of why you're having the physical reaction and the emotional reaction you are to this particular crisis. Okay. So that's the thumb. And then we go to the pointer finger. 
pinpoint what you can control. What does that mean? So when the brain's alarm goes off, all we can do is look for the emergency, right? So the smoke detector goes off. It's always at three in the morning and you're either running around in the dark, trying to find a battery, or you're trying to like get the broom and like knock that thing down. We are wired to, to look at the crisis. So the first thing that pops up is actually all the things we have no control over. The brain does this assessment. It's like in the ER, when you come onto the scene, you're going to have, you know, you're going to look at everything that's there in front of you and make your assessment. So we first just write down all the things at the top of the brain. What, what can't I control? Then we look at, well, what do I have control over? And we walk people through the process of figuring out on a day-to-day basis, like really connecting with the things they can control, whether it's their schedules, their sleep, their nutrition, the family schedule. These are things that feel out of control, but when we sit down and think about it, we actually do have some control over it. And then we look down and we say, what can we do about the things we can't control? So step two isn't about making a giant to-do list. It's about getting our brain's focus away from the fire alarm and onto options. The big thing about crisis is when we get hit by something big, we feel this sense of helplessness. And step two is what starts training our brains to get beyond that feeling of helplessness. Step three, so the middle finger, push into motion. How can you describe that? I love this. So, I mean, the middle finger is a finger of action, right? And and in our minds as we're writing, it's like, yeah, I want to get crisis the middle finger, you know? That's what we want to do. It's about motivation. So once we look at some of the options that we've outlined in step two, it's about finding the internal motivation um, on, on how to actually get started with those. And so we use some motivational interviewing techniques um, in the book. We have people d- divide up their tasks into easy tasks and hard tasks. And so, you know, it helps people get momentum and get going. Um, but this is a stage where you learn to find the fire in your belly to do what needs to be done. So yeah, that's the middle finger. It's action. It does stuff. It makes a statement. Give that crisis the middle finger. Step four of five is pull back. So the ring finger, uh, how would you describe pull back? So for me, the ring finger is intimate. You know, this is where people wear their, you know, engagement rings or wedding bands or something. And there's something to me that is soft. It's not a strong finger. Um, It's not where the strength in the hand is. And this is a time for people to pull back and start uh, reflecting and simplifying. And, you know, what is important in my life? This is where my snorkel analogy comes in. You know, we, life is like snorkeling. I said it, there it is. It's not going to get me on Oprah. Um, But it's, you know, your head is down and you're watching the fish and there's all these colors and movement and you're looking out for sharks and trying to find a sea star. But every once in a while, you have to look up and see where land is and make sure you haven't drifted. And so stage step four is about deciding where you want to be and going back to that area so you can get back to snorkeling again. You know, it's finding your life and what you value um, and tapping into 
who was I before this crisis came? Who was I before my divorce? How do I find that? I used to be funny. How do I get my sense of humor back? I used to be really like social and athletic. How do I get that part back of me? So it's reflection, it's simplification. We do talk about mindfulness as much as I hate that word and how it's just been stolen and overutilized and self-care. I mean, these terms that used to be wonderful. Now it's like all about marketing, but there is such a brilliance in training ourselves to be in the moment and give ourselves a break from all the million things going on in our head. So that's a peak of step four. Thanks. Step five, um, pinky finger is hold on and let go. What does that mean? Yeah. So it turns out in re when you research the finger, half of the strength of the hand is in the pinky. There's, I got to tell you, there's no a way. lot of weird stuff online. Yeah. If you Google, like, which finger should I cut off? Like there are articles written. If you had to choose which finger to have cut off, which one you should choose. Like we the movies and TV shows always do the pinky finger. I, they're wrong. They're wrong. They haven't done their homework because half of the strength of the hand, it's a posable thumb. That's where the strength is. And so we came up with this idea of hold on and let go. As you've gone through this reflection stage, this kind of soft stage, I think of it um, in step four, what in my life am I going to hold on to? And what am I going to release? Is there a grudge I need to let go of? Is there an unhealthy habit I need to let go of? Is there a way I have of talking to myself internally that I need to let go of? Are there relationships that are unhealthy to let go of? What is it I'm going to hold on to? Okay, I realize I really value integrity and I need to renew that. Or I really value kindness and I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to make an effort to be kind. So it's really about sifting through and looking as you're progressing through the crisis and as you kind of or work through the crisis, it's that kind of reforming yourself. One of the greatest gifts I ever received was right after my separation years ago, I had a high school reunion, horrible timing. I was like, I can't believe I have to go back without my plus one. The mean girls are going to be there. You know, I thought about all these horrible things and I went, and of course it wasn't a big deal at all. But I saw one of my friends that I've known since kindergarten, and I didn't talk a lot about my situation, but I knew she had been through a big breakup and I shared with her what happened. And she just said to me, Jenny, I'm so excited for you. And I looked at her like she was insane. And she said, you get to have a renaissance. Anything you want to do now, you can do, you get a reinvention. That's exciting. And her saying that was this wow moment for me that didn't suddenly magically change my life, but it opened the door into an area that had a new outlook for me. And that's really step five. It's this idea of a renaissance or kind of starting over coming out of the ashes. Yeah. You can't get to step five. You can't get to that pinky finger unless you've gone through the rest of the hand first, right? Right. You know, like you can't jump into action without having a good understanding and having like knowing what you can do and what you shouldn't do. Otherwise you're going to be like the ball in the pinball machine. You're just going to be action with nothing getting done. Like someone who's manic. Yeah. Um, so the steps really do need to be done in order. Given we're the Arizona physician podcast, 
with the, an audience majority of physicians. Um, can we focus on one crisis that you know applies to, to fellow physicians? Um, and I mean, follow, picking just one is yeah, really hard. Just one, right? <laughs> but that's how the second part of the book goes through applying these different steps to uh, you talk about chronic illness, a family crisis situation, um, loss, uh, some kind of trauma or the existential crisis. So um, if we could just pick one, maybe whether it's depression or something else mm -hmm. and try to apply these steps, that'd be helpful. Okay. So let's say we have a physician who's working full-time, married, kids, dog, mortgage, um, and a parent becomes ill with something big, cancer, early stages of dementia, something that's going to be chronic. Um, this is, I think, super common. And we have something similar to this um, in the book. It's not a physician, but um, I think we're all, you know, when we get to mid-career, we're already there. Um, so for someone in that situation, you know, if we look at getting a grip on the problem, okay, yes, I have an ill parent and maybe in another city and I, you know, I have a lot, like that's a huge problem. So step one is really the, what is my relationship like with this parent, because that's going to affect how I feel about this and how I react to this, my level of irritability with this. You know, what are my past experiences with loss? You know, have I had them? Have I ever felt abandoned? Is this the parent who abandoned or is this the one who was the rescuer? Um, you know, what developmental age was I during this, you know, abandonment experience. And, you know, we all will have different levels of reaction. And my favorite saying in psychiatry and in my own life too, if I'm honest, is if it's hysterical, it's historical. If how I'm responding now is totally disproportionate for now, then it isn't really about now. So step one is getting into why is this doing this to me? It's that excavation, you know, so, is this my go-to person? Maybe the person, my parent um, was domineering and made a lot of decisions for me and I'm afraid of being on my own or maybe I have low self-esteem and wonder how I'll get along without them. Um, what if my marriage is also suffering at the same time um, and I'm losing lots of supports? Um, so again, we have to stop escaping to dig in and find these things but that's kind of a basic first step. And some people may need a little therapy for that. Some people may be having these super strong reactions and logically they're not making the connections. And so we need to get into like trauma therapy or EMDR or something to help people get it subconsciously what's being excavated within them right now. That's just a, a snippet of something that we want to cover here. There's a lot more that we could go into, but I'm going to close with, with one final question for you. If there is a patient out there, fellow physician or otherwise, I mean, where do they go to seek help? Yes, they should look at the book, but where's their first step? Is, do people call a crisis line? Do people book an appointment with a psychiatrist or psychologist? What's a general piece of advice that you could offer to people? Right. Well, there are, you know, support lines and there are um, resources available nationally for, you know, depression, suicide, those types of things. I think what's really key for us as physicians now is we need to be forming community. 
Um, we need to be working together. Um, psychiatrists are in high demand. There aren't that many of them, but I will stop anything for a physician colleague who's suffering. And I think we need to reach out to each other. And sometimes we don't need treatment. I know what I've needed in the past when I've had cancer surgery, when I've had, you know, big life crises, I have a friend who's also a psychiatrist and it has a very European viewpoint. And he's the one who says to me, cut back. Like, what are you doing to yourself? Like you're exhausted. You're losing weight. You have this huge surgery come up. What are you thinking? And like I, myself, like we are programmed in medicine to just go, to ignore ourselves. We'll do these, you know, 12 hour surgeries and like pee our pants or just hold it in. Like we are trained that we come last. And when we are in crisis, sometimes we need someone else to put us first, to remind us that we need to start putting ourselves first. And so I find it really valuable. Um, You know, if I'm having heart palpitations, I'm not going to call the cardiologist until one of my friends or colleagues is like, dude, what the hell are you thinking? You're having, you know, an arrhythmia. What are you doing? Go call. And then I'll call, you know, I just think everything's going to be fine. And let me just return these, you know, 18 e-prescribe requests that I have lined up for the next 20 minutes to get through. Um, So I really think we need to take care of each other in areas where there aren't as many resources. You know, I always kind of collect uh, referral people. Um, I have therapists that I love that I can text um, and I have communication. So when I have someone who needs to see someone, I'm like, this is my go-to person. If they're not taking patients, ask them who their go-to person is. So anyone in primary care or surgery or any of these, you know, OB, these specialties where they don't have their own psychiatric training, um, they can find psychiatrists to refer to um, psychologists and just start talking to each other and asking. My primary care friends text me all the time. Should I give this person Xanax? I'm like, no, don't, but here's what you can do, (laughs) you know, and, and kind of discuss the pros and cons of the things that they're, they're questioning. Um, So I I think that's the most important thing. I think for me right now is the community. Um, So we aren't feeling quite as isolated because physicians are just getting a hard rep Uh, right now. We're being criticized in the media and, you know, taking a lot of heat for COVID. Um, and it's like suddenly nurses are the heroes and physicians are just, you know, nothing. And I hear that a lot from my colleagues. And so we, we need to build each other up. Well, thank you very much for um, putting this together. Thanks to uh, Dr. Hovick as well. Jennifer Love, MD, you are co-author of One Crisis Strikes, Five Steps to Heal Your Brain, Body, and Life from Chronic Stress. Thanks so much for coming on the Arizona Physician Podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's been really great to talk about it today. Founded in 1892, Maricopa County Medical Society is a strong, collective physician voice. Thank you for listening to the Arizona Physician Podcast.